Hello, everyone. Uh, you are listening to Two Wheel Cinema Club. My name is Andres Lorente. And I'm James Rosica. And every episode, we watch two films, one old and one new, and then try to make connections between the two. And uh, this episode, we're watching uh, Red Notice, which is the new $200 million Netflix feature film with Dwayne Johnson and comparing it with 1955's Rafifi, a black and white French heist movie. Uh, so did you enjoy Red Notice? I did. I'm not <laughs> proud to admit it, but I enjoyed parts of it. Absolutely. It's I think a, everyone would, so I don't feel like I'm the only one. It's a, it's a curate's egg. It's some kind of egg. Eggs, eggs feature heavily in the film. So, well, okay, well, let's, let me just kind of describe the, the movie um, a little bit in case anyone listening hasn't seen it. So, you know, it starts out with a little fake documentary uh, to fill in with a bit of backstory. And apparently there are three legendary eggs of Cleopatra. Uh, one of them is lost and we arrive in Rome. There's a big aerial shot and we get uh, Dwayne Johnson, who's FBI profiler Hartley, uh, not the uh, the J.R. Hartley that would be famous to British listeners from 1980s television adverts um, and, and not Hartley's Jam, which is the other thing that, that Hartley is famous for in Britain. So he's an FBI profiler. He turns up to the museum with Interpol agent uh, Das uh, to declare that the egg at the museum, uh, her, the Cleopatra's egg has been stolen. Um, Ryan Reynolds, Booze, the thief, is still in the room. Uh, Hartley gives chase. They chase over the world's worst constructed scaffolding, and uh, scaffolding, and, uh, and then uh, Ryan Reynolds is lost in traffic. And in Bali, he arrives at his luxurious beach home with his stolen egg, only to find that Dwayne Johnson and uh, Detective Das are already waiting for him with hundreds of soldiers in ski masks, and he's arrested. But the egg is stolen by Gal Gadot. Uh, who we now learn is art thief extraordinaire Bishop, the other art thief in the movie. So uh, back in Rome, Dwayne Johnson is drinking in a bar and Das turns up with the retrieved egg. She smashes it on the floor, uh, destroying a bit of vital evidence uh, for some dramatic impact. And it turns out the egg is a fake. Dwayne Johnson gets arrested uh, with by the same 20 people in ski masks and he's sent to prison in, I think, Russia. It's somewhere snowy and cold anyway. It's, it's stereotype Russia. Siberia. Um, and uh, surprise, surprise, incredibly, he's sharing a cell with Ryan Reynolds. Huh, who would have thought it? Um, <laughs> Gal Gadot turns up and she explains the plot. Uh, and there's an Egyptian billionaire who apparently wants Cleopatra's three eggs for his daughter's wedding. And she plans to get them all. But Ryan Reynolds knows where one of them is. He, uh, he declines her offer to help, though. So he ends up staying in prison where he and Dwayne Johnson carry a few polystyrene blocks around on labour duty. And then there's a kind of rather plodding prison break and uh, machine guns and an RPG and a helicopter. And it's it, it really, it's not nearly as exciting as it sounds. Um, it's all very dull. Um, Booth gets them a lift on a, a, a plane uh, piloted by a, a friend. And uh, the two men, they plan a heist to steal the second egg from a crime boss in Valencia. Have you been to Valencia in, in Spain? I have not. It's a beautiful city. It's really nice that you wouldn't know from this film. Um, <laughs> so, so, so in Valencia, there's a masked ball at the crime boss's party and there's a lengthy heist sequence with all the stuff that we've seen from all the heist films that we've seen before. It's, uh, it's lifting fingerprints from a glass and 
hacking into security cameras and there's a room full of guards watching monitors. You know, it's it's the world's worst, most expensive security system. And then uh, Gal Gadot turns up and she and Dwayne Johnson have a completely chemistry free flirtatious dance. And then the crime boss called Soto Voce, who's like, is he I'm trying to is he Spanish? Is he Italian? He has like an English accent. I'm not, not, and the, the guy is like a Greek American actor. I'm not he sure is. where he is. Yep. He's an American actor, very funny. Um, the Soto Voce is not really a comic part. It comes, it gets kind of caricaturish. I, I had the impression he was Italian. Right. Okay. That's good. I don't know. Soto Voce is, it sounds yeah. Italian, doesn't it? So um, yeah, he, he turns up. Uh, Dwayne Johnson and Ron Reynolds, they break into the impregnable vault. Suddenly, Detective Das turns up, and then she's suddenly outwitted in about four seconds, and they're in the vault. And then Gal Gadot turns up, and there's a fight with antique swords and shields that, you know, that probably should have been fun and clever, but just isn't. And then, uh, then Voce turns up, and it turns out that Gal Gadot is his girlfriend. Huh? Um, and then Dwayne Johnson and Ryan Reynolds, they get tied up in the basement of a bullfight arena for no very logical reason. There's a bit of torture. Um, Ryan Reynolds spills the beans on where the third egg is. Uh, Gal Gadot poisons her boyfriend and walks off with his egg. Then the boyfriend revives just for long enough to shoot a few bullets around before dying again, I think. Um, and Dwayne Johnson and Ryan Reynolds, they escape. Uh, and and they immediately give up any hope of, of catching Gal Gadot, even though she literally left the building 15 seconds ago. They just shrug and instead they climb out of the basement into the into the bullfight arena. And there's a bit of comedy running around with a bull that belongs in a slapstick film from 1960. And from there, uh, the two buddies, uh, they catch a train to Argentina. I kid you not. I'd, I'd, I would like to see the map they used when planning out this film. So there is some kind of train that takes you from Spain to Argentina. They have a, like a heart to heart conversation about absentee fathers um, that amounts to, to them saying, you know, cops and crooks, we're not that different. And it's not it's not like even a, a metaphor. They actually physically they literally deliver the line. We're not that mm-hmm. different. It's not subtle. Um, and they end up in the jungle uh, in Argentina. Nice to see Dwayne Johnson in a jungle movie having just seen him in Jungle Cruise for Disney, mm-hmm. um, which, which apparently was released to streaming the same week as this film as well. So those were your two choices that week. Which jungle shall we watch Dwayne Johnson in? So they're trying to find a cache of Nazi treasure uh, using like a crumpled paper map and a, a compass. And it did make me wonder, you know, is, is this film actually set in the 1960s? There's no GPS, no uh, survey data, no smartphones, no off-road vehicles. It's two blokes and a paper map. Uh, and they find it. They find the hidden, hidden Nazi bunker. And I have to, I, I have to, um, I have to say at this point, um, I think any film that uses Nazis as a plot point has a responsibility to explain who Nazis were. That we're like seventy-seven years past the end of World War Two, and all you would think uh, about Nazis from watching this film is that Nazis are somehow the purveyors of treasure. Like they come across as like the Nazis are the editors of a Sunday newspaper supplement. They're yeah. all about um, men's watches and high performance motor cars and fine art and foreign travel. And that's what this film thinks a Nazi is. I think um, they've become shorthand archetype for um, evil, right? <laughs> you, well, you would hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of the evil is a little bit understated, I think, yeah. in this film. Oh, definitely uh, understated. Yeah, 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 exactly. I think that's just it's just uh, lazy, I think. 
Um, and it's, it's too bad because we are at a point now where there are very few people who li- lived concurrently with Nazis who really knew what they yeah. were. And it seems to be getting less and less reported and dismissed as fake news or something these days. So, um, yeah, there's a responsibility to yeah. remember who yeah. Nazis were. Absolutely. Agreed. Um, so they, they find the Nazi bunker, they open it up and it, it's, it's Indiana Jones's uh, warehouse like uh, ryan reynolds is even in whistling the indiana jones theme tune it's not subtle they, they are, they're, they're openly admitting it they find cleopatra's third egg uh then gal gado turns up she must have been like 10 seconds behind them the whole way uh with her own crumpled map and then and then uh interpol das turns up with yet another team of 20 guys in ski masks who must have been like 15 seconds behind them and there's a huge gun battle everyone's uh, shooting to kill no one's phased by this huge discovery of nazi secrets nobody acts like a policeman they all just want to shoot anyone who might have tried to to claim a random gold egg um then there's a ludicrous car chase because of course every 70 year old nazi bunker is full of of well-maintained fully fueled motor cars (laughs) they they speed down some of the widest mine shafts in the world uh, big enough for two trucks and uh, eventually all the SWAT team get killed uh, and Ryan Reynolds and Dwayne Johnson they burst out from under a waterfall Ryan Reynolds swims to the shore he starts to go back to rescue Dwayne Johnson and then suddenly he and Gal Gadot show up and they explain that huh, you know what we two were working together all along and they show a few flashbacks to demonstrate how obvious it all was when of course it wasn't because the, the flashbacks were completely different to the scenes when we saw them the first time in the film um, it is. This is another one of those um, lazy devices in a movie. I got when 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 you get a reveal like this in a movie and it works, it can mm. make the whole film turns mm-hmm. everything around and it sticks in your mind. It's like Sixth Sense or Fight Club or Usual Suspects, just brilliant. And when it doesn't work, um, it uh, it's just you know insulting and um, deflating. I wrote down in my notes here. I wrote here the attempt to pull the rug out from under your feet. But the effect is just to make you notice how poorly laid the carpet was in the first place. Mm. Um, uh, so after the big reveal, uh, we cut to an Egyptian wedding. There's a few uncomfortable stereotypes and a couple of cheap gags. And then we get an epilogue where Ryan Reynolds turns up on Dwayne Johnson and Gargado's boat and asks them for help to steal some other valuable thing. So they all agree to team up for a sequel that I'm pretty sure no one wants to watch, or to the tunes of, of uh, Notorious by Duran Duran. Great. That was Red Notice. Two hours and $200 million on Netflix. Um, Notorious. <laughs> 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 my, my, my first question, $200 million, where did it go? The film doesn't look like they spent $200 million to get it all there on screen. I don't think it went to story development or writers. <laughs> We're yes. even getting notes from someone. Um, did, uh, this, did you enjoy this film? First of all, you said that um, the actors were each paid $20 million. Yeah, so I Yeah, so I read that you know, the three leads each got $20 million, yeah. and then the director got $10 million. So that's and where I, the first 70 yeah. went. And the credits, um, I, think, I, think, I think Dwayne Johnson was a producer. I don't know yeah. if Ryan Reynolds was or not. Um, but that that is a lot of money on 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 talent, as it were. Um, so that's what seventy million between the director and three actors. Yeah, I, I think yeah, so. Variety quoted a negative cost of one hundred and sixty million, and then a uh, further forty for prints and ads, I guess. But okay. um, that's Ooh. still we still have a ninety million dollar 
shortfall. Supposedly, a lot of the money was spent because it was filmed during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And it was all spent compositing people into scenes where they weren't really there because they couldn't act without masks on. Um, I'm impressed that you can spend $90 million on that. Um, Yeah. There's definitely special effects. I mean, you can see it there. Okay, Um, yeah. This is a real director's film. Every shot is over the top using all of the gear, the drones, the cranes, the steady cams. So there's definitely a lot going into the the technical requirements to make a film like this. But so, And it'll still make money, I guess. I mean, I don't really understand the new uh, format for earnings, the new business model. But if Netflix is, I assume, like the principal funder of it, is this entirely a Netflix project? And, you know, it's Got it worldwide. I suppose it makes billions somehow, even without people going to theaters. So, I suppose as a proportion of people's Netflix subscription, apparently, I, yeah. I read that um, Netflix were touting it as their biggest ever opening. That three million households tuned in for at least five minutes, which is Netflix's metric of success. They don't explain how many people turned off six minutes mm-hmm. in. Yeah, um, but that's that's how they measure. And I must say, I, you would think if this film was released theatrically, if they sold three million tickets, is that would that be considered a good opening? Maybe it would. Mm. Good question. So that's three million views within the first weekend or something. Yeah. Like that. So maybe that they, that is a reasonable um, a reasonable opening. Uh, Says so they don't explain how many people they believe bought a new Netflix subscription yeah. in order to see Red oh, Notice. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, Netflix are welcome to release and hold on to whatever figures they want, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. So why, why, I, I didn't think this film was all that good, but my question is, why not? Why didn't, why doesn't it really succeed? I'm not as eloquent as you are. Your analogy was fantastic. I said this film is an overflowing table setting of set pieces with no table. <laughs> and I, I think it come, for me, it just comes down to story. This is a, a director, a writer project, writer-director project, um, someone who had a vision, um, definitely got the, the, the talent attached that so got made, despite the high costs. Um, and I think it's kind of a worldwide film i mean it, it as you said before it goes from country to country uh, this is the kind of thing will play well with people in any um uh, in any culture in any language in any continent i think um it has it's that lowest common made, denominator appeal yeah, doesn't it it's a it's a popcorn trivial kind of caper film um that you know people used to go it's a blockbuster used to go to the theaters to see it um yeah i think it's kind of an experiment to see if it works online and that's why i don't understand entirely how it will but it's obviously they wouldn't do it if they weren't going to make money apparently Um, they have greenlit two sequels i was reading so they're happy enough about it to pay for another two to be filmed back to back ironically i think for a film that is set in almost every country around the world one Mm -hmm. of the main failures is in world building yeah. I think it's it's suspension of disbelief. You know, I, I I constantly asking myself, do I really believe the characters have, would have done this? Um, you know, the same people keep turning up again and again in the same places. Yeah. It, if it um, just doesn't quite pass that believability test for me, I think yeah. once you once you lose the believability, it becomes very difficult to invest in the characters or the story. And it was it was actually impossible for me to invest myself in it um, seriously. Anyway. Um, because I can't, I can't believe that that missile is going to go right through one door of the <laughs> helicopter and out the other because of Ryan Reynolds' piloting skills and 
and the rock's athleticism to get out of the way. <laughs> um, and that, that, that sort of thing just happened again and again and again. And as you said, people always show up just at the right time again and again and again. Um, I give you a hall pass. You can definitely do one or two little bits of uh, disbelief that I can suspend, but I, you can't do it again and again because I just think there, you erode any sense of attachment to the story world and the reality. There's just no reason to believe anything that's happening. So, um, But it's not made for us, Jimmy. We're older guys. This is the te- 12 to 25-year-old boy market, which is, I think, increasingly the world market. An irony for me is that a lot of this really depends on the wordplay in the script um, and the, you know, the international films, the ones that do well everywhere, are kind of these action pictures where you don't need lots of dialogue. But mm, there's a yeah. whole element, a whole layer of this film that depends on Ryan Reynolds be, being Ryan Reynolds and doing a great job of it. Yeah. Um, delivering these one-liners and uh, just great timing and The Rock as the straight guy. And I think that's what I loved about the film. Um, okay. Lo- loved is too strong a word. I'm sorry. What I appreciated and respect about the film was their relationship um, just in the way that they, they got along and they got through all these, these capers together. And, and there's a lot of humorous stuff. There's a lot of stuff that's just really topical and um, some things that I thought were totally inappropriate as well. <laughs> um, like setting, the, I was cringing when Ryan Reynolds was trying to get, his name's Booth, I guess, Nolan Booth. He's trying to get uh, The Rock's John Hartley into trouble in prison so that he can, we later find out, so that he can uh, steal a prison guard's key or something like that. But there's a lot of really inappropriate sort of build-up to get there, and it really messes with the tone quite a bit because there, there's some dark images. He's really trying, going after some dark things, but he's doing, saying it in a, funny, in a funny fashion. I thought that was really inappropriate. The, the electrocution of the testicles, to me... <laughs> I mean, that's, it's sort of disrespectful to the political prisoners who really go through that. I mean, it's, mm. it's really kind of a trifling moment in this film. And it's, I mean, it's supposed to be intense because Ryan Reynolds is witnessing his new, his new buddy suffering. But as, as events play out, you realize it's not that authentic. And I, I, I was uncomfortable with that scene as well. So there were some, there are definitely some tone moments that a careful viewer, I think, would, uh, have a problem with but what comes out overall is these guys they kind of learn to like each other or they, they even though they're opposites or think they're opposites they make a great team right um and to a certain extent i think they're well cast and i think it's it's something that they can both do well it's in their wheelhouses so i think that was the appealing thing for me what do you, what do you think it's about this film this is one of the one of the other uh, question marks I had about it. I was struggling yeah. by the end of the film to think, well, what's you know, what kind of is the theme here? What is it about? Is it that there's no honor among thieves? You know, but there, there kind of is. And in the end, you know, Ryan Reynolds's character is, you know, wants to buddy up with, yeah. with um, Dwayne Johnson and um, the bishop, yeah, and Gal yeah, exactly. And then well. you know, is, is, is the theme, you know, crime doesn't pay, but then you know, crime does pay, and actually they get away with the money. And you know, the only reason they lose the money is because of some off-screen hacking that yeah. Ryan Reynolds' character does at the end of the movie. So it's, yeah. it kind of feels like I'm not really sure what the theme is here. Yeah, it's, I don't think it's those things at all, and it really can't be because you're glamorizing them at every turn. So it's not that, and and you know they're. It's amazing how many friends with either airplanes or trains or helicopters or whatever that Ryan Reynolds has. So you're, they're definitely glorified. So I don't think it's that crime doesn't pay and it's not uh, that bad guys get eventually get their due or anything like that. So for me, it's much more about um, the partnerships, I guess. And uh, they, they kind of spell the theme out 
for us when they're on the train. I don't even know what country they're in. They end up in Argentina somehow. But <laughs> they're they're Atlantic, I think it must be. <laughs> <laughs> it's this train crossing the Atlantic Ocean to get to Argentina. <laughs> and I think, yeah, what is it? The Rock says, look, um, uh, my father was a crook and I ended up a, a cop and your father was a cop and you ended up a crook and uh, there's not that much difference between us. Um, but then, and, if, if that's the theme, they blow it at the end, don't they? Because the rock eventually you know, commits. Oh, actually, no, I am a crook. So, you know, the reason we have so much in common is because we're exactly the exactly same. same. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, they, they, about, they, they yeah. try and have their cake and eat it. I don't know. Yeah, for sure. You were, you were saying earlier on, um, before we recorded, that you noticed yep. some product placement in the film. Oh, yeah. Okay, so you wanted to know what the film was about. The film was about <laughs> selling stuff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, and it, it sort of harkens back to that, you know, who the audience is. And the audiences are getting wi- wider, I suppose, because I think there are just more ways to make more films that reach more people. Um, so I think we're headed towards a more inclusive uh, film industry in some ways. But um, the other thing that ties people together is crap. And in this film, there are advertisements that are not so subtle about Coke, Instagram, Etsy, Two times, I think, Alexa, Windows, the Windows system, Samsung, iPhone, Mercedes-Benz, and even Ed Sheeran gets a little plug <laughs> for his career, I felt. So um, it's definitely to sell stuff. And the thing that concerns me is I, I think with a project like this, that's written into the script. I mean, that's obviously dialogue, um, and Ryan Reynolds is probably a great ad-libber and such, but I think that stuff is in there intentionally. The power of the Coke to reveal... Uh, the egg that Ryan Reynolds has replaced the uh, original with um, <laughs> is corrosive to say the least. I mean, <laughs> yes, is that happened or not? Hardly pours Coke over it, and that reveals that it's a it's a fake. So the power of Coke. Coke is great. Obviously, we should go out and buy some. So I I felt like there was definitely that. It's definitely the point of the film to a certain extent is to make this film again and maybe plug some more items. So. Um, it's not a very subtle setup for the sequel at the very end, by any means, um, as you noted. And uh, I think that's it. It's just to sell another film, probably. So it should be called Ad Notice and not Red Notice, yes. shouldn't it? Yes, absolutely. That's yeah. what the film is. Um, yeah, and it is. Uh, yeah, it is a lot. It's a, definitely a big film. It's definitely trying to, uh, to 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 please people with all the the action and, and set pieces, but. Um, it's not uh, it's not a great film by any means, but I do see the I see the power of it. I see why it is uh, popular on Netflix, and uh, and we've got at least two more to come. So so there's yeah, there's no escaping the, it. Yep. Run, yeah, and maybe that's why run it's run. not about anything cut and dry. Is because they're you know they're gonna make a couple more. So uh, to explain the story, <laughs> I do agree with you entirely on the final reveal. Just felt pasted on, and those were some scenes that. Um, didn't really give that information very clearly um, when we first saw them, and it just felt like it that even may have been something that came along in, in editing farther down the line to make the story yeah. more interesting. Yep, yep, yeah. It feels like a cheat, doesn't it? And and you know, and which means that you you know you leave the movie feeling a bit cheated. You know, it's not. Yeah, I don't think as an audience member you feel respected by this film, uh, which is a, that's a grave mistake, I think. Yeah, agreed. Oh, okay. Um, well, that was Red Notice. Uh, after the break, um, we will have a chat about 1955's Rafifi.
And we are back. And we are going back in time to 1955 uh, for the film Rififi. That's R-I-F-I-F-I. Which takes place in Paris. Entirely in Paris. It does not jump around the world. It takes place entirely in Paris in the 1950s. Um, definitely in a world of sort of underground crime and criminals. This is also a heist film, so it's well paired with Red Notice. Um, this is, I would say, this is like the Ur heist film, isn't it? This is, this is the heist film that uh, is the granddaddy of all the heist films that we watch today. Exactly. I, I don't think you have Red Notice without, um, without Rafifi. In some ways, it's definitely laying down uh, the foundation and the characters. Um, Feel like I think um, archetypes are even cliches, stereotypes now, but I think in 1955 these were probably some of the earliest versions that we saw of um, uh, high stakes thieves or um, or uh, even gangsters or whatnot. It definitely has the oh, a noir look. It has a noir film. It's about um, uh, noir characters. These are men who kind of have their eyes set and their dreams set on um, uh, upward mobility via, via crime, I guess. Um, Tony is our protagonist. He's recently out of prison. We meet him in a poker match where he's coughing, so he's ill. We know this guy's unhealthy. Um, he seems to be down on his luck after getting out of prison, and he has no money um, to play the next hand of poker or whatnot, so he, he gets his friend um, Joe involved. We're immediately, uh, by calling him, I guess, yeah, we're immediately introduced to Joe in a very warm, family-like environment where he's playing with his son, his wife is there, he takes the call from um, Joe and goes to help bail him out. Um, we learn, um, certainly that shortly thereafter, that uh, Tony's ex-girlfriend, Mado, has now um, picked up and she's um, sort of uh, living with or dating um a guy named Pierre Gruter, I think his name is. He is the owner of a nightclub called L'Ange d'Or. And you, Jimmy, said that you call it a hostess club. Is that right? I, th- I think I think that's what it is. It's one of those clubs okay. where you you know, you um, you pay money to go in, and then you get to sit next to an attractive lady who will order expensive champagne on your behalf. Okay. I think I think that's how it works. I think that's a hostess club. Okay, is, and where is, where guys like Tony would hang out? Yeah, like a... I got to say, my, uh, this is my uh, my oh, pun yes, of the yeah. week. Um, mm-hmm. I was overjoyed when I realised that the large door, uh, the nightclub, actually has a really small door. I I patted myself on the back when I noticed that. But... <laughs> it's an ironic name for the club. I suppose. <laughs> it's a small door that goes down into a basement club. Um, so it's definitely got this wonderful secret secrecy about it. It's sort of a, an illicit nightclub, and yeah. Uh, um, the women down there are dancers and singers, and like all the women in the film, they don't have great. They're not really great character roles to play. Um, they are there yeah. to serve the men. Um, and Tony's in tough shape. He's got uh, no girlfriend. He needs money. Um, so he's sort of being um, asked by Joe and his partner, Mario, uh, to steal some jewels from a sort of a rich jewelry shop um, in a neighborhood in Paris. Um, because of his condition, Tony wants to do it, but it's not really clearly spelled out. But somehow Tony... Uh, convinces them to go a little bit bigger and actually get into the safe as opposed to sort of pulling off some job where they're just pulling some jewels 
that are in the window. Um, yeah, he wants to go he, big, he, go big or go home. Isn't he wants it? to go yeah. big or go home. And and uh, and Mado is, I guess, maybe she's one of the inspiration. He wants to get her back, but he treats her very poorly. And I guess that's a good segue to talking about some of the women. He um, invites her to his home. She does come. He sort of slowly talks her through undressing, and then I think it's mostly done off screen. But he has her in the bedroom, and he actually beats her up instead. Yeah, it's um, shocking, it, isn't it? It's, it's shocking. It's very uncomfortable. Violent. Yeah, it's a bit of characterization, um, um, which is harsh, but that's who he was. By today's standards, it would be awful. Back then, I'm sure it was too. I hope it was. Um, it's, it's a great it's example of, of like showing character through action, though, isn't it? It's like you know, yeah. t- Tony doesn't explain who he is in words, yep. but he shows us who he is by what he does. It's, yeah. you know, it's, it's, great. it's great kind of cinema character. Yeah. And the one thing that reminded me of uh, characterization was, um, or the characterization specifically in Red Notice is um, when when we're sort of getting an introduction of a proper introduction to the Brian Reynolds character, Hartley's character, Dwayne uh, Dwayne Dwayne Johnson's part. Um, He's an FBI profiler, and he tells uh, Ryan Reynolds his entire life. He's able to give like this whole biography, you know. And it seems ridiculous, but and you know, I guess it's into in, in keeping with the character. He is a uh, FBI profiler. He would know these things if he studied Ryan Reynolds' character. But it's ridiculous characterization. It's just exposition. Whereas here, <laughs> you would I think that like Ryan Tony Reynolds in... might know what his might yeah, know exactly. what his character is. <laughs> exactly. Um, for Tony, I I know he's been in prison. I know he's ill. I know he needs money, and I know that he's not nice to his ex girlfriend. So I mean, it's it's effective. It's uncomfortable to watch. Um, but the the women in this film are generally sort of weak in the kitchen. They're cooking. Uh, they, Joe's partner or wife has a child. She takes care of. Um, they're kind of out of the loop. They're not really that yeah. aware of what's going on with their husbands or partners. And I mean, the, yeah, the women in this in this film, but they're I think they're largely objects. But I can't quite yeah. decide whether it's the film that treats them as objects yeah. or the male characters. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, the male characters definitely do. So we we know that for certain. Um, um, and I think this is built based on a story. So I don't know the the source material. I think there was a book um, that this is based on. I, I saw I saw an interview with Jules Dessin actually where he was saying that the the original book um, he had to change a lot of it because all of the bad guys were North Africans ah, in the book um, okay. and he was kind of saying oh, I you know don't think he could get away with that and um, I think the producer was saying well who, what are you going to make the bad guys then why don't you make them Americans or are you going to make them English and he said well why don't we just make them French um, which the producer thought was like this genius idea that he'd never yeah. Really thought of yeah. Well, and it is interesting. Jules Dessin is actually American. Yeah. Um, grew up with Russian parents, probably had, you know, spoke Russian. But in this film, he's the director. But he also plays Cesar, who's the fourth character in the heist group, um, who's an Italian. Uh, he's like the excellent, the, the, the safe cracker. The, I guess that's what they call him these days. Um, so he's brought in from Italy. So in the film, he's sort of speaking bad French, and he's speaking mm-hmm. with an Italian accent, or is Italian very often. So it's an interesting, I don't know how his own French was, but Jules Dessin does this sort of interesting thing where he plays a, a foreigner speaking in French at times, lots of Italian, um, even though he's an American. So it's an interesting role that he, that he gave himself. Um, so basically for... Tony, at least, it's kind of prison or poverty. Um, the stakes are high. He wants to maybe get his girlfriend back, but he definitely wants uh, money. So it's a very clear um, thing that they need. 
Uh, and we get to the sort of what I consider the end of the act, uh, first act, um, where they figure out how to disarm the alarm, which is going to alert the police or others um, to the fact that they're going to be um, pulling off this, um, this heist. Um, and then we go into a long 29-minute sequence of just classic cinema where, without a single word of dialogue, um, they manage to get into sort of the neighbor building of the uh, jewel shop, um, drill a hole through the floor. They're trying to get down into the safe from above. Um, a great bit of characterization that you really drew to my attention was um, as they are binding and uh, tying up the sort of the, the concierges of the building. Um, I think it's Joe puts a pillow behind the woman's head. They're making their their victims comfortable, even though they're um, you know they're gangsters. They're they're kind yes. of good guys, and there's something human about yeah, them. Yeah, it's a nice little character moment. Mm -hmm. Fantastic stuff. And then the the entire scene is fantastic. Um, it's, just, it's one of the greatest sequences in noir cinema, isn't it? Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. It's, 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 yeah, it's 29 minutes. There's no no dialogue, not even any music either. Yeah, that's it's right. Just it's action and sound, and that's it. It's fantastic. Just incredible. I, yeah, I read that there was a composer working on the film, and they did compose something, and they went decided to go with uh, uh, with no music for the for the scene. Mm. So you get to really see the detail, and this is the complete opposite of Red Notice in the sense that <laughs> Ryan Reynolds or uh, Dwayne Johnson always tell you exactly how they're going to do something, <laughs> and the director shows how they've done it in Red Notice. Um, in this film, we go right from them figuring out something very simple, like just how are we going to silence this alarm? And then all of a sudden, they're actually doing the, 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 the heist. There's no plotting that we see. And what, what I noticed was it was the characters look like, you know, they've rehearsed it perfectly, but I'm not really sure that, um, I should say the actors, but the characters in the film, it, it feels really current. Very, it's a, a surprise. We have no idea. So we're in on that scene, curious about how they're going to do this um, the whole time. And it's because they've rehearsed it very well. We haven't seen it on camera, I guess is what I'm trying to say. But the actors yep. obviously know what they're doing. And there's lots, lots of glances and a lot of sort of um, uh, hand gestures and whatnot that take us through it. And, you know, they pull out this umbrella at one point. And you're, how are they going to steal you know, millions <laughs> of dollars worth of jewelry um, with an umbrella? But it's part of the the entire process. And it's it's wonderful how it all comes together and um we um we see it right there in real time and it's kind of it, it's like it's fresh for the actors it's fresh for the characters it's fresh for the audience as well yeah, which makes it really so in the moment watching yeah. this it's, you're yeah. seeing every moment unfold and it's like you know, you you are keeping silent in sympathy with the characters it's, you know, so I would love to see this film in a cinema, in a packed cinema, because yeah. you can feel how the audience would be just as quiet as the characters, you know, breathing exactly. shallowly and holding your body tense because um, the tension is right there. You're right in it. Yeah. Um, it did make me wonder, yeah. why is this not the norm for cinema these days? This is such a wonderful silent sequence. Why is this not? In you know every noir film or every heist film, every crime movie, every action movie, why, why do so very few films attempt this kind of direct yeah. visual storytelling these days? I just don't really understand it. Um, great question. Yeah, I don't know that I have a good answer for you. I, I, I think to a certain extent we're un, we're uncomfortable with silence, so we expect someone to talk us through it. I mean, the, the talky sections in Red Notice that cover the same sorts of material, the same sort of scenes are 
all about dialogue. <laughs> it's all, um, it's all yeah. you get the fingerprints while I disable the cameras. It's, yeah. yeah, it's, Precisely. it's absolutely, so it's, it's, it's people These saying two films are well paired because, going to do you know, and they're they doing are heist it and films, then watching you do it. And then yeah. afterwards them saying, well, we did that. <laughs> so, <laughs> Um, but the, yeah, the the heists themselves are night and day between the two films, um, and I think we are starting to see there. As I said before, I think there's just so much more filmmaking now that I think we're going to start to see more um, pure films and whatnot, where it's just cinematic language. It's really just telling stories through pictures, or at least sequences like that. And uh, I have seen a few films like that in the last couple of years, so I think I think okay. we'll start to see it. Maybe it, you know it could just be we're cycling through a, a talky talky age. I mean, everything's on the internet. I mean, there's like lots and lots of talking on the internet, lots yeah. of exposition, basically. And I think that's kind of where we are right now. There's too less... many words. Yeah, too I, many words. I, I was racking my brains to try and think of a contemporary example of something, of a film that does the same thing. And the best I could come up with was No Country for Old Men. Yep. Yep. which has you know a, a number of sequences where there's no dialogue. But that film even is 15 years old now. Yeah, um, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's keep an eye out for that going forward um, for sequences like this, because this is yeah considered a a classic in the in the genre, and uh, definitely a, that scene alone is um, very very telling, but without using words to tell. I guess yeah, pure pure cinema, pure cinema. Um, for me, the act, the end of Act Two, it also sort of is. There's much more emphasis on the process of getting into the safe than there is of actually getting the jewels themselves, that last little bit. So the acts one and two kind of end with a work around the alarm um, and how they disable it twice. So you see it in practice and then you see it um, in the execution of the heist. And it's kind of interesting that he, he sandwiches the moments um, that way. Right, yeah. Um, their their comeuppance is in Act 3, basically. Um, a foolish error by Cesar, who gives a ring from stolen in the heist uh, to one of Guter's girls, uh, who one of the ladies who um, was the singer at uh, L'Age d'Or. Um, and that sort of turns on Guter to the, fa- Guter to the fact that uh, Tony and his guys are responsible for this heist that uh, has come to people's attention. Um and then, boy, it's kind of one funeral procession of a third <laughs> act where Grutter or, uh, or the police uh, end up taking out um, one by one the four uh, guys, Mario, Joe, um, Cesar, and Tony. Um, there's a funeral procession for Tony within the third act where the police are there, Grutter's guys are there. It's a, kind of an interesting moment because it seems very showy. Um, again, in the other film, it would have been done uh, with drones and been this big, big moment. <laughs> Here, it's quite sedate, but there is a funeral procession for him. Um, but Grutter's guys eventually kidnap um, Joe's son, who we'd seen in the very beginning of the film. I think they've got this house that they're building outside of town or something like that, and they are sort of holding up there. Um, but eventually, Tony comes along, and he's able to um, get jo- Joe's son um, away from Grutter and his men. Um, but Joe has died in the process. I think Jimmy, correct me if I'm wrong. Is that where Joe dies? Is at yeah, the house? Yeah, he gets Joe is shot, shot on the stairs in the, yeah. the half built house. Yeah, yeah. And Gruder is, you know, by today's standards, he's not really, really bad guy. But he does have this one um, goon who um, he keeps sort of addicted to drugs. He sort of pays him off with drugs. So he's got him addicted, and he'll do whatever um, Gruder wants him to do. So he's the one who actually kidnaps um, Joe's son at one point. Um, and they eventually uh, get out of there. Tony gets the sun out, and sort of the resolution of the whole film is Tony's final heroic act 
even though he's not such a great guy. Again, this is late characterization, but I, I feel like there's this sense that I got to get the kid home to his mother. I've got to cut off this, you know, generational crime thing and, and make it so that Joe's son is not one of us. Uh, right. It ends up being a very hallucinatory ride through Paris. I mentioned before there were no seatbelts as they were driving, <laughs> but, you know, if you're dying, I guess you don't care about a seatbelt even for the young uh, passenger. Um, and then the final shot reminded me a lot of Chinatown, mm. where um, Tony kind of dies behind the wheel after delivering um, Joe's son to his mother. Um, and, you know, there are people milling around in the street, but it almost seems like this is no big deal for them, or this is kind of exactly <laughs> the fate that uh, uh, awaits someone like uh, Tony. So yeah. I mean, um, the, the movie goes full on Hamlet at the end, basically. Yeah. Every, pretty much everybody dies. Everybody dies. Even the loot is lost, isn't it? That you know, nothing yes. survives. The police yeah. even get the money. Nothing goes to any of the protagonists or their families. Yeah, and I should say that the, zero. the one thing that wasn't so impressive was the amount of loot that they get out of the deal. It's a, a couple of necklaces and earrings and things. Yeah, and rings. It, you know, it doesn't. It seems like they went to a lot of effort. So I'm assuming that those necklaces were just worth an amazing amount of money, or that was considered a big heist in the 1950s. Whereas now you've got to steal three of Queen Lac. Queen Cle- Cleopatra's eggs. Or eggs. You need to find one, a Nazi vault full of yeah. millions of tons of gold. So Otherwise, it's just not worth it. Not worth it. Not worth it. Yeah. And that uh, film was made for about 500... No, I don't know how much it was made for. It was. Um, it earned about 500,000 um, worldwide in 1955. So, uh, it would have been um, made for a tenth of that or something. Yeah, probably something like that. So again, it's... Um, it's much more subtle than Red Notice, which is not hard to do. Um, but... <laughs> Um, it's a lovely film. Uh, yes, yeah, definitely, totally definitely. successful, I think, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it ab- yeah. absolutely succeeds in what it sets out to do. It's, you know, a real noir gem. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. It won Gilles de Saint Best Director at Cannes in 1955, oh, right. I think. Okay, nice. So, you know, it was recognised as a great movie at the time. Um, and I, I, there's no um, no big question about what this film is about, I think. I think, you know, it, it, the, the themes are, you know, central to every... every uh, Every scene in the film, I think, isn't it? Well, it's absolutely, it's a crime doesn't pay, isn't it? I think. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not, I mean, it doesn't really glamorize the characters that much. I mean, I think there was this, probably this infatuation with, with gangsters and crooks of the time, but there's not the sort of, um, I don't know, like the showmanship of Red Notice or the yeah. fancy yeah, clothes, you, the fancy transportation, all the. You don't you know. come out of Rafifi thinking, yeah, I want to be like those guys. Yeah, I mean, no, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so but a beautiful film all the same, and uh, certainly um, worthy of uh, its accolades, especially for that the actual heist scene. I mean, I think there are some questions about the film's attitudes towards women, mm-hmm. uh, maybe that make it a little bit of an uncomfortable view these yep. days. Um, but it's it's interesting to approach how 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 to see how the two films approach world building, because. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the the world of Rafifi feels you know it's it's entirely self contained and completely consistent, doesn't it? Um, it feels like a very believable world. There's some wonderful shots of of uh, Paris street life in the 1950s. You feel really grounded in this you know real proper physical place. Um, the scene towards the end where Tony has to kill Cesar. Um, yeah. There's this little bit of dialogue. Cesar is tied up and Tony tells him, you know, oh, I liked you, but you know the rules. 
mm-hmm. um, and uh, and then shoots him because mm-hmm. he's grasped on his his co-conspirators. And I feel like you know, Rafifi is a movie that really knows the rules, um, you know, and it, it really knows the world that it's trying to describe, and it's entirely you know consistent and um, you know and keeps it up. So it's, I think yeah. that's one of the reasons why watching the film, you're so suspended in the moment. It's really believable. That whole world, you know, is completely um, solid. Yeah, it's believable, isn't it? Absolutely. And there's at least one rule, right? I think in Red Notice, I'm not sure there are any rules, and it's completely unbelievable, obviously. <laughs> and in fact, yes. it does, do you see anyone die in Red Notice? That's a good question. I mean, I presume, well, I think... I presume that lots of SWAT team members in ski yeah. masks uh, die, but they aren't real characters and they don't yeah. really exist. And you um, don't, wonder, you know, they don't get Sotto, the... Sotto Voce die? I'm not sure that he, he does, but then maybe he doesn't again. He doesn't. No, no, because he's chasing them in the, in the bullring in, in uh, I think that's in Valencia, right? Yeah. I, which I think, you know, sort of says something about the filmmaking. It's like... There's a lot of careless attitude with a lot of the characters in Red Notice. It's like there's lots of gunfire. We really never see anyone die. Um, whereas in this film, you know, the protagonist has to kill one of his buddies. Um, and the people who do commit the crime, they all die. I don't think yeah. anyone else dies necessarily. But, um, which is funny, because if you compare the number of gunshots in the two films... <laughs> <laughs> Red Notice definitely wins the day, but they're it's like, yeah, a couple Red of Notice spent the entire budget of Rafifi just on blank rounds, didn't yeah. they? <laughs> so uh, you know, that, I think that just uh, it's more careless with both uh, its characters and their lives, I guess. Um, so um, I know I think you enjoyed Red Notice a bit more than I did, um, but um, I don't think you know it can hold a candle to Rafifi and I hope maybe you're right that with you know digital lower budget filmmaking becoming more widespread and online distribution becoming more available maybe we will see films that are more um, learning the lesson of pure cinema for something like Rafifi yeah um, but I know that um, that uh, Red Notice has already um, got the green light for two sequels um, they're going to be shot back to back. So we're going to be seeing, we're definitely seeing more of Red Notice. Um, I don't know whether there will be enough Rafifi to offset it on the other side of the scales. Good if anybody boy. wants Good to watch boy. either of the films, so Red yeah. Notice is available all around the world forever entirely on any screen that you can log into. Um, Rafifi, I think there is a Criterion Blu-ray that's available. I think it is available on some online services. It's worth tracking down. Absolutely. It's a beautiful gem of a film. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. Yeah, yeah. And Red Notice, I'm just trying to be more optimistic as I get older. So I think the two things you've just mentioned are examples of my success being more optimistic, trying to look for some good in Red Notice, but also hoping that, uh, yes, indeed, there are more films that learn lessons from Rafifi in the future as opposed to those that receive them from Ad Notice. Right, this has been this has been uh, the Two Real Cinema Club. Thank you for listening. Um, we hope you've enjoyed yourselves, and uh, we will see you. We will speak to you again uh, next episode. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye.